Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Welcome to our service. I'm Monty Judah, Director of Line of Land Ministries, and we're glad that you joined us here at B'nai Shalom for our Arab Shabbat service. A couple of quick announcements that we'd like to share with you. For those of you who've been following and maybe thinking about going on our Israel tour, we had to delay it from the springtime to the fall uh, because of some other issues. And as a result of doing it, we've been able to lower the price just a little bit, uh, got a better airfare out of the deal. And so if you're interested in going on an Israel tour with us, um, it's October 23 through November 3rd. That's well after Sukkot. And it's a 10-day tour. And uh, if you're interested in that, uh, contact the ministry. We can get you some other information with regard to that. All right. Uh, also, you know, while we're starting here in January of 2017, of course, we have all of the holidays coming up this year. Um, Passover will be coming here shortly in the springtime, then Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, and then later the hall, fall holidays. We, Line of Land Ministries, will be hosting a Shavuot conference here in Norman, Oklahoma, June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. While Shavuot is only one day, we're going to have a whole weekend to enjoy uh, the seventh of the counting of the seven Sabbaths and then the Feast of Weeks, the 50th day. Uh, the Day of Proclamation will have a conference here. And we'd like to invite all of you, if you can, a journey here. We have a wonderful conference facility for you to be able to stay at, have your meals, and, and have a wonderful time of fellowship with us that weekend. And if you're interested in that, uh, look at the website, look under events, under the Shavuot um, conference that we have scheduled. So I'll give you a heads up on those if you want to do some advanced planning for the year. Later on, we'll share with you some other planning that we have going on for the Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll cover that a little bit later on in the year. In the meantime, I'm ready for Sabbath. Amen. And today, we have a new president in the United States of America. So as we come together for Sabbath, well, we've got some changes taking place in our nation. Obviously, um, pray for God's blessing upon him and upon our nation uh, for the change of leadership as we enjoy our Sabbath. Amen? All right. So join us now in Kiddush. Join my family as we usher in the Sabbath. Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam Asher Kiddushanu Bemetzvotav Betzivanu Lehad Lechner Shel Shabbat Amen Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light to the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Bless the wine. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam, Amen. 
Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. One beautiful bread. Hamotzi. Hamotzi lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, o Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Let's bless our wives. Lord, thank you so much for blessing me with my wife. I pray that you bless her hands as she prepares our home and takes care of it throughout the week. Thank you for blessing her hands as she takes care of our child. And thank you for blessing me with everything I can do to bless my wife so that she continues to bless me. Thank you, Father. Amen. Amen. And we do the blessings over the sons. Yeah, that's you.
Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Micha Mocha. Micha Mocha Ba'elim Adonai Micha Mocha Nedahar Ba'chodesh Nohora Tehilot O Sefele O Sefele Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, 
Doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you, O Lord. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'alam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru b'nei Israel et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adortam b'rit olam. B'nei avayom b'nei Israel ot hit le'olam, k'shashet yamim asadonai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'aret avayom ha'shavi'i shabat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. We all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha u'v'chol nashicha, u'v'chol me'odecha. Ve'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher anachim e'zavcha, hayom alevavcha. Vashinantam lavanecha, v'tepardabam peshivtecha, v'yetecha, u'vlaktecha, v'derechu shakpika, u'vkumika. Ukeshatam la'oto yadecha, v'heyu latotvo b'inenecha, u'chetavtam la'mazuzo petecha, u'vishorecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. that you are great and there is no one like you in all of the earth Yahweh be thou glorified King of glory Father you are great and there is no one like you for great is your name. 
Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. If you would, open your Bibles, and if you would, turn to the first chapter of the book of Exodus. And as we are opening the Torah for this week, let me do the blessing for the opening of the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher barakabanu mikol hamim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai Nonten ha Torah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our portion for this week is entitled Shemot, which means names, which is also the Hebrew title for the book of Exodus. It comes from the very first verse in Exodus where it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. For Joseph was in Egypt already, and Joseph died, all of his brothers and all that generation. But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty in the land, and the land was filled with them. Here our story shifts again. We've completed the book of Genesis uh, in our Torah cycle, and we've completed the story of Joseph. For many weeks, our narrative was about the story of a man named Joseph and his uh, the story of redemption, in which that he was able to save his family, his brothers, and the known world at the time through the famine that was in Egypt. And now Joseph has passed away. Time has now uh, gone on with the children of Israel dwelling in the land of Egypt. What comes in the very next verse where it says, Now then arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Some have always wondered, and I know I've always wondered, how in the world that over a period of time, over the course of several years, that one could forget the story of Joseph. One could forget the story of man even throughout all the, the land of Egypt. The story of a man who came and who saved the world, who was the viceroy of Egypt, who was the, the second in command to Pharaoh. That there was this man named Joseph and he was then forgotten. He was forgotten what, what he did and what the children of Israel meant to Egypt. Um, I've done some study in uh, the extra biblical text, the book of Yasher, uh, and other ones that talk about like what actually happened in this period of time. Um, as time has gone on, I've learned to not give as much credence to those uh, texts as, uh, as much as possible in the sense that this is that the Bible, what we read, doesn't give a lot of that detail. And I believe that, that is, there's a purpose to that, that the Bible gives us the narrative that we need, that we need to learn, the things that we we need to focus on in the scripture. 
um, as what is given to us here in our Bibles. But for those that want to know some more of the backstory or possibly what the backstory is, as though some of those uh, texts cannot be uh, verified and not as credible sources, um, that this over a period of time is how this took place. The children of Israel dwelled in the land of Egypt for a number of years. What I just read here about a new king rising in Egypt, this was over a great number of years after the children of Israel came down to Egypt. All of the sons had passed away. All the sons of Jacob that I listed, as time went on, they all passed away. They no longer, uh, they no longer were alive, and things change. Times change. However, the children of Israel dwelled in the land of Egypt and grew exceedingly mighty with the Egyptians. Stories go that the children of Israel fought alongside the Egyptians, that there were wars, wars with Esau, wars with other nations that took place during that time, possibly, and that Israel was so mighty, the sons of Israel were so mighty and strong, they fought valiantly, and they, and they worked cooperatively with the Egyptians, but the Egyptians, as time went on, they kind of they had some let me just say racist tendencies where they're like these people are mightier than we what happens if they go join the, our enemies and and those are the questions that the Egyptians may have asked to where then they realize they then have to deal uh, wisely with the children of Israel. And it says that here that um, in the scripture where it says that the Egyptians spoke to one another and said the Israelites are mightier than we are. We need to deal shrewdly with them. So what they had to do and what their fear was, was that this mighty people was going to overtake the Egyptians. They then put them under hard bondage. Now, if this was a mighty people, then I don't believe you can just send taskmasters to go and put them under hard bondage. This had to have been a gradual process. This was There was some socio-political uh, uh, situations going on in Egypt to where the uh, children of Israel worked with the Egyptians and they labored to build uh, storage cities of Pithom and Ramses. And then as time went on, they would remove the wages. They would uh, put the, make them do more work. And so this was a gradual process. This was not just a, the Egyptians came and took over the children of Israel, that this was a slow process in which how the children of Israel came to be slaves in the land of Egypt when just a few generations previous, they were a mighty people. They were a, they were a good neighbor to all of the Egyptians. I've always wondered about some of those things, and you can go into more study of how that all took place. But needless to say, the story gets to the whole point of this story is to get to chapter two when we now are introduced to a man named Moses. And let me go ahead and read now here in chapter two, where it says, And a man in the house of Levi went and took a wife, a daughter of Levi. Now, this daughter is Yocheved, which we talked about previously, that this was the uh, woman that was a daughter of Levi that was born when they arrived in the land of Egypt. And it says, So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took a ark of the bulrushes, uh, of the bulrushes for him, dabbed it with asphalt and pitch, and put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds at the river's bank. Let me give a little bit more backstory of what was going on here. The king of Egypt, um, what he did was he then instructed the midwives of the Hebrews as Israel began to grow and into slavery, they still grew. They still became mighty. Even when you put someone into, when a people was put into slavery, then. 
that those people would waste away. Those people would become nothing. The, the slave, they, they would, um, it would cease to grow. The children of Israel, even in slavery, continued to grow in number, in, multiply, uh, in, in multiples, and be mighty. And so, what the king of Egypt tried to do is he then tried to enact some sort of population control, where he then wanted to kill the children if there was a son born among the Hebrews. He instructed midwives to kill the sons in the process of childbirth. When the midwives refused to do that, and they were blessed for, for not obeying that, he then told them to have the Hebrews and created a law to where the Hebrews had to throw their sons into the River Nile. This obviously ties to the story, um, and there's a connection to Herod when there was a prophecy about the birth of the Messiah himself there in the first portions of the book of Matthew. That there's a connection here where, where the Lord works in cycles. And so where we get done with one story, a redemptive story of a man by Joseph, we now are moving to a new redemptive story through a man named Moses. And these all tie into the redemptive story of Yeshua. And there's patterns and cycles uh, of these things. And so we, when you have these stories of where a king is instructed to kill or has instructed the, the people to kill all of these sons, it ties right into the same thing that Herod did when there was, it was prophesied that the Messiah was born in Israel. This actually, if you read those uh, extra-biblical texts I was talking about earlier, the king also heard of another prophecy, that there was going to be a Hebrew son born in Egypt that was going to deliver the Jewish people, or not, I'm sorry, not the Jewish people, but the sons of Israel. And that this is why this uh, prophecy was made, or this is why he instructed them to kill the sons. So here we have the birth of a Hebrew son, and the mother saw he was beautiful, and she wanted to protect him, wanted to save him. Um, there's a little interesting story as to why she hid him for three months. Uh, more study, and uh, Judaism believes that Moses himself was actually a premature birth. That um, Yoheved, his mother, was so aged that the birth, probably there might have been issues with the birth, but he was born premature. This ties back to the birth of Isaac. When you had Sarah, who was also aged, and anyone who's done deeper studies on uh, the story of Isaac, the promised son, he also is believed to have been premature. So there's continued patterns in the lives of these patriarchs and these great men in these stories that it's very common that whenever these men or the, these great men were born, they're born, their births are almost miracle births, if you will. That they're born of a mother who is old and aged. Or a born of a mother who was barren, for even it tells that Rebecca was barren before she had Jacob and Esau, and Rachel was barren before she had Joseph. There's the same pattern here throughout all of Scripture. And so when it says here that she hid him for three months, it's believed that she was able to, because of his premature birth, she was able to hide him for a period of time, rather than when people, when uh, the Egyptians would have expected her to have a son. She was able to hold the son and keep him hidden for three months because she had him early, if you will. So she hides him in an ark when they when the Egyptians come, she can't hide him any longer. So she hides him in this basket, this ark, puts it in the water. And many of us have heard this story before. It says the daughter of Pharaoh came to the river to bathe. She finds the child. She takes him and then she she sees and they know this is a Hebrew child. This is a Hebrew child that is here. This isn't just... So um, they then try to nurse him because he's crying. But then Moses' sister, Miriam, who was waiting uh, and watching to see what was going to happen to her younger brother, 
She goes, approaches the daughter of Pharaoh, asks if she wants to get one of the um, female midwives or the, the nurses of the Hebrews to come and help. So what she ends up doing is going, getting the mother, Yocheved, and Yocheved herself got to still nurse the son, Moses, before he dwelled in the house of Pharaoh for two years, it says. So this amazing miracle that this baby was hidden, but then she still got to be a mother to the child. And so the name Moses comes from the daughter of Pharaoh because it says that she drew him from the waters. Moses. This passage in this Torah portion, uh, I, I do want to say this also before I go any further. I love the name of this Torah portion. It is, um, it, it's phenomenal that the name of this Torah portion, Shemot, names. We're introduced to several different names of, in this Torah portion. This is a theme of this Torah portion. We hear the name of Moses. Moses receives his name, and we learn of this man named Moses. The whole thing begins because a king and Pharaoh forgot the name of Joseph. And later on in this portion, through the burning bush, Moses, we will learn the very name of God. And at the end of this portion, it'll be talking about where we're trying to introduce God to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I do not know this God. I do not know his name. And God will introduce himself to the Egyptians. It's an amazing uh, uh, title and a theme throughout this entire passage of scripture. And so um, more on that later. So here we have Moses who then grows up in the house of uh, in the house of Pharaoh. Now, why would they let Moses live? Why would knowing that he was Hebrew? Why would because the decree was made for all the Hebrew sons to be killed? Why would they let this who they know is a Hebrew son continue to live? Well, there's a great teaching uh, that my brother Rico Cortez has talking about the laws of adoption. And also, I believe it ties into his teaching about the lake of fire that the, the Egyptians who had many gods. They thought the River Nile was a god. They thought that, that, that there was a god of the Nile and the Pharaoh was a god. And there was all these different kinds of gods. Well, there was. Ancient, you can go into study, I don't recommend going into a lot of studies on ancient gods and other uh, pagan religions. But, however, there is a study in which that if somebody believed that there was a, god, a water god, and somebody was cast into the water but then was delivered up out of the water, they would believe that the water god had saved them. That there was a reason for him to be saved. And I believe, and I, I, I think Rico, our brother Rico, is right on point with this, is that the, they believe the God of the Nile had spared this child. That's why he wasn't immediately put to death. That's why he grew up in the house of, of Pharaoh, and that they had no problem with a Hebrew son growing up in the house of Pharaoh. So that's an interesting point. You can study a lot more on that. And so that was always maybe a question that somebody might have. But if the Egyptians and their belief in all these other gods, that is the that's the system in which that they would have allowed Moses to continue to live. Moses grows up in the household of Pharaoh. And many of us have heard many of these stories and you can watch movies and, and uh, you know, kids have grown up watching the Prince of Egypt. Or you may have seen the Ten Commandments uh, by Cecil B. DeMille. And so we know much of the story how this goes. Moses grows up in the house of Pharaoh, yet as time goes on and as he grows, he goes out to see the burdens of the Hebrews, and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. And so he looks left, he looks right, and he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. The next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrew men quarreling, 
And he says, why do you quarrel with one another? And they says, well, who made you Lord over us? You're going to kill us like you killed the Egyptians. So he thinks that the matter was known that he had killed an Egyptian. Where it is known, word gets back to Pharaoh and Moses flees to the land of Midian from Egypt to spare his life. And that uh, the king of Pharaoh, so this is where Moses has his falling out with the, with the Pharaoh of Egypt. Cecil B. DeMille didn't necessarily get this right. And in, if I recall in that story, Pharaoh actually sends him away into the wilderness. And I know that was probably done for creative license and maybe make the story more interesting. Um, but what it is it truly is that Moses, he fled for fear of, the, fear of his life. How old was Moses when this took place? Well, um, in previous studies and things that I've said before and, and uh, uh, extra biblical texts say that Moses was about the age of 18 and there was a great adventure of his life before he was about 80 years old, which is when the uh, exodus of the children of Israel will take place. However, in Acts, we have the story of Stephen and the testimony of Stephen, who specifically says that Moses was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian and fled. If that's the case, and I actually tend to favor that, I tend to favor what's actually said in the scripture as far as the chronology of these things, that Moses, who lived to be 120 years old, very distinct uh, sections of his life, 40 years in the land of Egypt, 40 years as a shepherd in the land of Midian, and then 40 years of regathering the children of Israel. If one wants to go into a greater study of the life of Moses, which I certainly would recommend, which we're going to be talking about uh, for a great number of uh, weeks in the Torah portions, of course, is that to study the way the pat- there's, a, there's a pattern there with Moses and the sections of his life and what those might mean to his testimony. So I'd encourage somebody to uh, study that further as well. So we know the story. He, continue, he travels to the land of Midian. He hides out with a man named Jethro. And he goes, he becomes, a, uh, he becomes a shepherd. He marries a wife. And then he, in the process of being a shepherd, with the, the story moves on uh, in our uh, tour portion, that he sees a burning bush, a bush that is consumed with fire but is not consumed, is not burned down, but it's, it's on fire. So he goes and he has to go and see this. Now, this is when the true story of this begins. This is when the Lord speaks to Moses for the first time and instructs him of what he is going to do. And this is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture that I encourage uh, anyone to study, to look into. I'm going to go and read this and and read. These are the words that God has spoken, the very... um, very essence of who he is speaking to Moses, who's going to lead them out of uh, lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. So here in chapter three, starting at verse four. So the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look. God called him from the midst of the bush and he says, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face and was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, for I have come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. 
Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression from which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be the sign that I have sent you. When you have brought the, children, the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. What we have here in this passage of Scripture where it says that, where in my uh, translation it says, the Lord, God of your fathers, what we have in the Scripture is we have the yod heh vav heh name of God. There's been a lot of debate, a lot of discussion over this name for many years, especially within the Messianic movement, as far as what is the pronunciation, what should we, should we say the name, all of that. And there's a great deal of debate, which I don't have time to go into today. But here is the time in which we learn the very name of God, this powerful name of God, the yod Hey vav Hey name, which has so many other uh, uh, parallels in it to it that is, is very powerful. Now, the question that I submit to you, and this is um, what has been a point of debate, is that who is speaking here in the burning bush? We already, we already know that it is God. God speaking to Moses through the burning bush. But those of us who are messianic, those of us that have believer, believers in Yeshua the Messiah and, the, and, the, and the, his testimony, we see the connections to this passage of scripture, to the words that Yeshua spoke. To where we arrive at the conclusion that Yeshua is the one who is speaking to Moses in the burning bush. Now let me explain a couple of things there. Um, one of the things that is, uh, there's a passage in John chapter 5 at verse 41 where Yeshua said, I come in my father's name. I come in my father's name. We here we're introduced to the name of God. And so the question is, is alright, is there a difference between God and Yeshua? And what we have is we have Yeshua who is at times have said, I and my father are one and I come in my father's name. We have the interesting uh, verse in Proverbs uh, 30 at verse uh, 4, starting at verse 4, where it is the uh, riddle where it says, who gathers the wind in his fists? Who has all this power that God has? What, who is, what is his name? What is his son's name, if you know? And so there's this riddle in, the, in Proverbs that is like, that, is there a different name? The answer to the riddle is this. It's the same name. The Son comes in the Father's name. And so when we read about this yod heh vav heh name, we should, as believers, know and look and see Yeshua speaking the very words to Moses that he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And he's speaking into Moses at this time. There's also a very interesting um, pattern here. Later on, now in this, um, uh, in God speaking to Moses, he's going to give Moses signs to, that show that he has spoken to the God of Israel. And he gives him three signs. He gives one, he gives him a sign where he takes his staff and puts it on the ground and becomes a serpent. 
And he picks it back up and then it becomes a staff again. He gives them another sign where he says, put your hand into your cloak, pull it out and it's leprous. Put it back in and pull it out and it is healed. So he gives them the sign of instant healing. We then have the third sign where he says, take water and you can turn it into blood on the dry ground. Three signs that God gives to Moses for him to go and perform to the children of Israel to um, before Pharaoh. And all of that takes place in Exodus chapter 4. And we know, and in through the study of Yeshua, we see these same signs carried on through the life of Yeshua, where he turned water into wine. And to Hebrews, it's um, wine and blood are kind of synonymous with the blessing of life. And so when Yeshua turns water into wine, it says this is the first sign of Yeshua, the sign of Moses that Yeshua gave through his life and through his ministry. And then he also healed someone. He had the ability to heal instantly when he healed the boy who wasn't even present. But when they ran back to say, when was he healed? It was, he was healed at this hour, the same hour that Yeshua spoke. Instant healing. This was the second sign. And what is this third sign? This something to do with this serpent and this staff. Well, the story of Moses' staff continues through the rest of Scripture. To where we hear about Moses lifting up his staff at a time when the children of Israel were in pain. They were bitten by fiery serpents and Moses raises up his a staff on a serpent and all who look upon it will live. And so there's this, uh, this third amazing sign of Moses where when you see the Son of Man lifted up as Moses' staff in the wilderness... Then you will see I am. That comes from John chapter 8. And that's the words of Yeshua speaking to his disciples about what is the what will they see. It's very interesting of those words in John chapter 8 where it says, Then you will see I am. I am. The I am God that is here in this passage of scripture as well where he says, I am who I am. Again, we have this amazing pattern, this connection of Yeshua to this moment in scripture. Where you have his words so many times combining with the name of God, with the I am God, and the three signs that God gives through Moses. So if you ever uh, make notes in your Bible, you need to jot down some of those passages of scripture that connect Yeshua's testimony to this moment in time when God, Yeshua, God, yod heh vav is speaking to Moses and giving him the signs and commissioning him to go before Pharaoh and to bring out the children of Israel. Moses goes before Egypt. Let me go ahead and wrap up uh, kind of what happens in the rest of our story here. Um, Moses receives the signs. He goes back to his father-in-law, says, I need to go back to Egypt to save my people. He says, go in peace. And what it is, is on his way back, he meets back up with his brother, um, with Aaron before they go before Pharaoh. A couple of things I want to note here, and some of the words that God uh, speaks to Moses. He says that he will harden the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, let me go ahead and read um, chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord speaks to Moses. This is on his way back to Egypt. When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh that I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. God is prophesying what will happen in the future. This is what's going to happen. 
And so when Moses goes before Pharaoh, and what happens in chapter 5, Moses goes before Pharaoh, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and he says, I don't know this God, I'm not going to let them go. In fact, now, because of you, they have to make bricks without straw and make their burdens even, even more. And I'll show you who God is, that's what Pharaoh thinks. And so Pharaoh, or God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And at the end of our uh, passage of scripture here, at the end of chapter 5, uh, um, Moses doesn't understand what's going on. He says, Lord, why have you brought this trouble to the people? But God himself already spoke to Moses. These things have to happen. I will harden his heart and that you have to tell him to release the Israelites or uh, because of they are my firstborn, and that if you do not, I will kill your firstborn. God is already prophesying what's going to happen. But Moses, being a very humble man, he struggles with his calling in life. And this is kind of how I want to kind of conclude uh, what we're talking about here. The Lord, ends our, the Lord speaks to Moses one final time at the end of our passage, first verse of chapter 6, where it says, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand I will let them go, with a strong hand I will drive them out of his land. God has all the power here. God is speaking to Moses, and there's like a to-be-continued right there. And as we go into next week's portion, we're going to talk about more of the miracles of what God is going to do to the Egyptians to bring them out. But Moses is unsure. Moses is calling back to the Lord and saying, why did you call me? And this is what I want to talk about here. Because if you do go back to the conversation of Moses with God in the burning bush... He at many times says, who am I that I should go? What should I do? In fact, uh, back in chapter 4, it talks about Moses saying to the Lord, Lord, I am not eloquent, nor therefore sense, and I, uh, you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech, slow of tongue. This has always been an interesting thing about Moses is that people might look at Moses and when you see the movies and you see Moses, he's this big, powerful man who speaks well and and he's the one speaking to Pharaoh and telling him, let my people go. However, this, the way the scripture describes Moses, that was not who Moses was. He needed Aaron to be the one to speak for him because he was slow of speech, slow of tongue. I've said before that there's, um, there's an ancient story of when he was a child that his tongue had been burned as a child. And I'm not going to go into the details of that. But there was an act, possibly an actual reason why he was slow of speech or that he had a, a lisp or a stutter. And actually uh, uh, Jewish sources have studied what exact speech impediment might Moses had had. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I don't believe <clears throat> that that is the thing we should focus on. We shouldn't focus on exactly what the speech impediment was, what he, how he could speak or whether he could speak. But to me, there is a greater teaching here in the life of Moses. And it is this, is that it's not about a leader or a speaker and how well they can speak and how uh, well they can get the words out and how eloquent their speech is and how long-winded they are to speak all kinds of manners of, of, of miracles and information and knowledge that you then listen and you're like, wow, it's amazing how he speaks those things. We're not supposed to follow the person doing the speaking. We're not supposed to follow them because they're so eloquent in their speech and in their words. This ties back to Yeshua as well, where any other further studies that we believe that Yeshua was not a handsome looking man. He was a humble man. 
that when you followed him, you followed him because of the words he said and the things that he did, not because you're following after some sort of vain thing about the person. That the same thing can be said for Moses. That it is not about how well he spoke. It's not about the amazing leader he was. But it's instead about the things that he did and the things that he said and the words that God put into his mouth and through him, God spoke. That's what we should be doing and that's the things that we should be focusing on. I don't want anybody to be listening to our Torah teachings here and my father would agree with me here. Don't listen to me because I speak so well. In fact, I don't really. So I wouldn't want you to, to turn it off because maybe I fumble over my words from time. And I wouldn't recommend that you follow after the, and, and hear this Torah teaching and listen to my father because he's so eloquent in his speech. But no, instead, follow the words that are being said. The things that we're, that we're sharing in the knowledge and focus on that. And this is a testimony that you can do through the rest of your life that when you go and you meet people and you meet friends or you follow after other teachers, don't follow after them because of their their, their way they speak and the suits that they wear and, and how good they look on TV or on stage. But follow them if they are speaking the true words of the Lord, the words from Scripture, if they're carrying on the anointed message from Scripture and that they are not following, telling you to lead you away from or, or, or go this way or follow this philosophy or anything like that. But instead, listen to the words being said and follow after the truth of God that is revealed through his scripture. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings that we have here at this ministry, Lord, and the opportunity to teach and to speak. And Father, we thank you for your words and your instructions here at the start of the book of Exodus, Father. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of Moses. We thank you, Lord, for all of the stories of Scripture. And as you continue in the cycles of everything that you do in our lives, and we follow after the cycles of teaching, Lord, and after we are done with Joseph and then we move on to Moses. Father, we thank you, Lord, for their testimony, their words, their instructions, Father, that you have spoken through them. Father, I pray that we take them to heart. I pray that we would learn from them. I pray that we would uh, learn the things, speak into our lives that we need to know, Father, so that we can uh, move on with our day-to-day -day lives and even on into our future testimony, Father that you would encourage us with these words, that you have spoken to men in the past, Father, and we pray that you would continue to speak to us just in the way that you spoke to them. Guide us with your Holy Spirit, Father. Pray that you enact your will in our lives. And Father, as we continue on through the teachings of your word and the scripture, Father, I pray that we are encouraged as we continue on with the stories of Moses and the deliverance of the children of Israel, Lord. Let us take it to heart each and every week as we study these words and these instructions. We bless you and thank you for the opportunity to come together as a, on Sabbath, to fellowship, to he, worship your name, and to hear your instruction. So we thank you, Lord, for all of these blessings. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natanlanu Torah Timet Vahayolam Natabatochenu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat shalom. Um, uh, let's uh, open up our scriptures to our Haftorah portion. It begins in Isaiah uh, chapter 27 at verse 6. Uh, and before I get into this passage, let me just uh, tell you there's a little bit of diversity and a little bit of complexity with this Haftorah portion as how it fits into the first portion with Exodus. First of all, there are two different passages that are used by uh, the Jewish people when it comes to the Haftorah that goes with this Torah portion. The Ashkenazic uh, tradition, that is the European Jew, the white Jew, the ones that went into the Western world, uh, into America and so forth, they use this passage from Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah chapter 27. However, the Shephardic tradition, that's the Moroccan Jew, the North African Jew, the actual Middle Eastern Jew, the one that spread off to the East and other Middle Eastern countries, they use the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah as to be their passage that they do it. Now, they really have a parallel, and the reason why they're selected to go with this particular Torah portion has to do with the greater theme of what the Torah portion is about. Ephraim, as he shared with you and went through uh, Shemot, uh, he explained how God, uh, you know, has uh, Israel down in Egypt, and th things begin to change. And there's a new pharaoh, and all of a sudden the children of Israel are beginning to be oppressed. They had been successful there for some time. They had prospered. They had increased. You would have thought everything was going great, uh, except for the Egyptians began to change on them and became taskmasters, and Pharaoh became alarmed, and, and all of a sudden they began to treat Israel as an enemy with great suspicion and began to, uh, to inflict harm. Children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Well, this was all part of a great prophecy that God had already told Abraham. Abraham had been told that his descendants would go down into the land. They would be down there for at least four generations and that the Lord would bring them up out of that land at a future time, and that they would plunder that land. They would plunder Egypt when the Lord brought them up, which it hinted at there would be conflict. There would be some kind of conflict there. So we have the start of the book of Exodus, and we have this people, the children of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, that are now, according to God's promise, being brought up out of the land of Egypt. And, of course, it begins the story of the Exodus and how God will judge Israel's enemies, namely Egypt in this particular case. And as we all know the story, Israel will come out and there will be a whole series of things they're going to have to learn. They're going to have to learn the Torah, and, and they're going to have to learn how to obey the Lord. And, and at first blush, they, they, they don't do that so good. But they do make it through the wilderness journey, and the whole rest of the book of Exodus is telling us, you know, that whole journey, and much of the Torah covers it. One of my simplified teachings of the Torah is to, since I've been teaching it for a bunch of years, I can break it down into a couple of sentences. The Torah is really the story of one generation that came up out of Egypt, traveled through the wilderness on a journey to the promised land that had been promised by God. That's really what the Torah is about. Uh, the book of Genesis is just explaining how in the world did they get stuck in Egypt to begin with. And if you recall, after Jacob and his children, 70 went down, 
So the book of Shemot starts with the 70 that went down. What happened to them? How, how they're, that the descendants of those 70 are going to be coming up out of the land. And so we, if you step back and you take a, a larger view of things, and that's where the Haftor portions come in, Isaiah, the prophet, as well as Jeremiah, the nation, is, the nation of Israel is in the land with, with Isaiah and with Jeremiah. But there are enemies. In the, in the case of the Assyrians um, with, with um, Isaiah, in the case of the Babylonians with Jeremiah. Take your pick. Here's Israel in the land, and we have these enemies. Well, the same thing. Israel was in the land of Egypt, and suddenly Egypt became enemies. And it talks about uh, God's purposes to preserve, protect, and deliver us out of those situations. And that's essentially why these parallel passages go with it. If it's the big macro picture of that God purposed, it was promises made to the fathers, purposed to bring Israel up out of Egypt, deliver them, and to do good to them in the end by bringing them to the promised land, establishing them as a nation, giving them the Torah, and, and setting them up correctly. Now, I want to, to kind of help you to understand the dynamic of these Haftorah portions because they get a little bit complicated. And I don't want to bog you down with all the complications and the minutiae detail level of the stuff. Let me give you, since we're Americans here and most of us know the, the dynamics of what's just taking place in our nation, I want to give you a modern-day parallel to kind of what this Haftorah portion is doing. Our nation, the United States of America, we've just gone through this election process, and we have a new leader. We have a new president. Um, and there's great controversy over it. Half the nation is for him, half the nation is opposed to him. And fundamentally, it's not about the personality of now President Trump. That's not really... The, the, fundamentally, let me tell you what the great conflict is. The great conflict is, do we as a nation want to continue on in the way that we were founded and the way that we began? The whole idea of the progressive movement is to view what this country has done in the past with its constitution and the things that we've gone through for the last couple of hundred years, is to say that those things are archaic. And that the constitution never took into account all of the modern kinds of nuances and issues that we have today. And therefore, we need to depart from that or migrate from that greatly to address the modern issues. This is the progressive argument. The conservative argument is says, no, 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 wait a minute. The Constitution and what it said established the base principles for our nation to be unique from other nations. And while we can, we have all of the structures, the court system, the representatives of the people, the executive branch of government, that can handle whatever contingency, whatever problem comes up, but will hold to the original principles that were instituted by the founders of the nation. And there's a fundamental argument that's what, what in the Supreme Court what they call an originalist versus a progressive. And one of the big debates over the 
presidential election is he gets to appoint the Supreme Court justices. And right now the court is four and four split. Some want to hold to what the Constitution said. There's four of them that say, no, let's move on. And we're just giving lip service to what the Constitution says. And we have previously had a president who did not honor the separation of powers in the government. He usurped many things that the Congress is supposed to do and did it on his own. And the Congress didn't stand up to it. And we got a mismatch of different branches of government, which the founders, if they were here today, they would go, oh, my goodness, this is not what we set up. And so you have this argument between originalists conservatives and progressives. Well, let me just tell you, Israel, and particularly when this passage of, of Isaiah and Jeremiah is doing, they have the same issue. They are now in the land. They've been there for a while. They know where they come from. They know the promises of the fathers that were given to them. They were given the Torah, which is like their constitution. And suddenly... We're in the days where the enemies are coming and threatening, and there's threats. And there's some of those that are in Israel, rulers and leaders and so forth, they're saying, let's move on and become more modern given the circumstances that we have to face with our neighbors. And others are standing up and saying, no, let us hold to exactly what the Lord gave us. Isaiah is a man in his day for 40 years stood up like an originalist. And he said, let us do what the Lord said and let's stop playing these games, these modern games of drifting away from those truths, those principles, and getting ourselves in all kinds of trouble. And fundamentally what was at stake was as the Assyrian power came to power, world power, and they, of course, would invade the northern part of Israel. They would take the ten northern tribes captive. Judah was spared from it. Judah and the southern kingdom, the, the modern leaders were saying, let's go make an alliance with Egypt to be against Assyria. And here's Isaiah saying, don't make an alliance with Egypt. You have the Lord. To protect you. You have the Lord to defend you. Now, I'm certain that in his day, that must have sounded just as silly as in the political debate today. What do you mean the Lord's going to protect us? I mean, you know, that's, you know, that, that, that's religious stuff. That, that's uh, a spiritual hocus-pocus, archaic, ancient uh, stuff. That doesn't work in a modern world. I'm sure that's exactly what the arguments were in Isaiah's day. Same arguments going on in our country. What is at stake with our country right now today is exactly what was at stake with Israel in the days of both Jeremiah and, and Isaiah. We know this ancient story of God's purposes of pulling us out of, out of Egypt. It was according to the promise to made to the fathers. He takes us, delivers us from those enemies, takes us, gives us the Torah, and then takes us into the promised land and to establish us as a nation. So we're talking about national issues. And Isaiah is referring back to the original stuff, what originally happened. Jeremiah is referring back to the original stuff to try to get the people of Israel to hold to what is the original plan. 
that God has been doing for a long time, and it's been working. Yet the modernists, if you will, were said, oh, no, we, we don't believe that. We, we need to figure this out. We need to you know, adjust and, and modify. And today we have the same issues going on in the United States of America and in the Western nations. Europe has flat given up on its Christian heritage. The United States has been severely bruised. In fact, I, I think Christianity and uh, things for the United I think they're down for the count. I think we're, you know, the referees just standing over counting off the number 10. But the dynamics are the same. They replicate. We are a people here in the United States that have lost sight of our own constitution. Just like the children of Israel lost sight of the Torah. The supreme law of the land. Our leaders no longer hold to the faith of the God of our fathers. Just like Israel's leaders did not hold to the faith of Moses and those that were leaders. The only voices standing up in those ancient days was like Isaiah and some other prophets, and they didn't like what they were saying. And today we have conservative voices standing up, Christian voices standing, and there's a whole lot of people who don't like us. Uh, in this last week, some of this kind of came into focus. This is an example to me what I call living Torah. This last week, I'm sure that you have heard about this in the news. There's a, a certain black congressman, very famous. His name is, is John Lewis. He was a very famous fellow in the civil rights movement. He worked with Martin Luther King uh, to help bring about the Civil Rights Act changes in our culture, uh, how we deal with racism, particularly racism against black Americans. But it broadened into the, the, the greater issues of uh, that we don't want racist policies and we don't tolerate racist activities and speech um, in our country anymore. Not, not like we used to have. And, he's, and to a certain extent, he's a little bit of a hero uh, for that. And I remember, I, I've lived through this time frame, I remember that the, one of the reasons why Martin Luther King and the civil rights leaders were successful, the reason why it appealed to those in the country who would listen to their argument and, and would agree with them, contrary to the racist bigotry that was going on, was that they would tie back into the Constitution. They would tie back into major spiritual principles. They would tie into these, these principles of truth, of freedom, and life, and, and that, that God has given us as definition for, that comes out of the Torah, which was the basis of the Constitution of the United States of America. That all men are created equal by a creator. That God is the one who brought us about. And uh, Martin Luther King, which we just observed um, the holiday for him this week, uh, one of his famous speech, you know, about when he stood on the Lincoln Memorial and said to a very large assembly, he says, I'm hoping for the day when my children will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And 
that kind of thinking, that kind of highly principled thinking was born out of what the Constitution was about, was born out of what the Torah teaches us, and, and that's the reason why the, the guys who wrote the Constitution were great believers in Scripture and used the Scripture as, as the precedent-setting principles that they embedded into uh, the Constitution. However, we live in a time when people don't like those constitutional principles and they certainly don't like the biblical principles. And they want, they want, they want to make the rules differently. Now this man, Congressman Lewis, sat down this, apparently this last week, had an interview and he's talking about our new President Trump and he made the following statement that he did not consider that President Trump was a legitimate president. Now, the reason why he's saying is, so to kind of clarify what his point is, that the process that brought him to win the Electoral College, part of the argument is, well, he didn't win the popular vote, but he won the Electoral College. And, oh, by the way, the Russian hacking thing, it may be influenced. We think that he conspired with them. And, and, and there's no evidence of this whatsoever, by the way. In fact, the intelligence community have already testified before Congress that any hacking that may have didn't change any votes. The voting of the American people was the voting of the American people. The Russians had nothing to say with that, had nothing to do with it. And what is fundamentally at stake, and we've got a whole bunch of liberals and progressives arguing, you know, we need to change this electoral college thing. This is a major constitutional definition where the Constitution says the American people don't elect the president, states elect the president. It's the United States. This is the Constitution of the states that are united to decide who will be the commander-in-chief of all forces to protect the states. It worked in conjunction, the Constitution, that we recognize there's communities and individual states, and then we're going to form a federal element that will be above that, that the states will be determining. But people forget that we're a representative republic. We're not a true democracy. This idea would say, I vote in my state so that the state will have a say. That's what the Constitution set up. That's what the Constitution wanted to establish, so that states would have a say. And like the election results here, if we just went by the popular vote, let me tell you who would have decided who the president is. Because Hillary Clinton got the most of the popular votes, it would have been California, Texas, New York, and one other North, New, New Easter, um, uh, northeastern state. Do you want those people to be the only people who have a say about who's going to be in the head of the federal government of this country? What about Oklahoma, Nebraska, Kansas? Don't those people have a say? And remember, the Constitution didn't set it up for individual citizens. It was setting up for the United States. If we wanted to set it up as one nation, then we would all have an equal vote, and it would have been one nation. But no, the Constitution said, no, we're going to recognize the rights and sovereignty of individual states. It's just that we've agreed to be united. All of this was discussed by the Founding Fathers. All of this was worked out. It was all ratified. It's all been agreed to. And there is a change amendment process in this if people want to take the time and go, go do it. And by the way, 
the Constitution has been amended several times over the years. It's a living document that can be changed and can be amended. But when the guy, John Lewis said, I don't consider him to be a legitimate president because he didn't win the popular vote. You know what he's actually saying? And by the way, I'm not trying to make a big political speech here on this deal. This ties directly into the issues concerning the Torah. He's saying, no, we got a better idea. And our better idea is, I want my way. And there's more of us than you. And I'm going to ignore that we all live in different places and there's different issues all over the country. It's just, I'm going to get, I'm, we're, we're going to have our way. And despite that we already agreed to do this other way, this process with the other way, I don't like the process because I don't like the results. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to discredit the whole process and I'm going to say that he's illegitimate. You know what he's just done? That man took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States as a congressman and he is now making a treasonous statement telling systems, uh, citizens to no longer follow what the Constitution says which is the supreme law of the land. That is what is at stake at this country. Now, that's your modern parallel. Let me tell you, in Isaiah's day, it was the same issue. Are we going to hold to the Torah and what God did when he brought us up out of Egypt? And delivered us from his, fulfilled his promise to the fathers. Are we going to stick with God's plan, working with our fathers, building, giving us the Torah, bringing us into the land, giving us the land? And are we going to continue to keep this nation going, honoring God and following God? Are we going to do something different? Well, a whole bunch of people in Isaiah's day, in fact, many leaders said, you know, I think we need to form cooperative relationships with other nations and be a little bit more like them. I think that would be the better way to deal with the controversies of our day. In our world today, individual sovereign nations are going, you know, I think the better way to get through the world here today is let's take a globalist position. Let's relinquish our sovereign rights as an individual nation. Well, it just watersheds down. Let's also relinquish the rights of the states in the United States, and let's just make it one big global thing. And it's going into the world level. Let's just make it one global thing. Let's destroy the identity that started this. Let's not listen to what God said to Abraham anymore. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Zerah. Let's stop listening to the instructions that Moses gave us in the Torah. The laws that he gave us to, us, to govern ourselves with. Let's come up with a new thing.
will in our country. Let's no longer pay attention to what Washington and all the founders argued over and spent so many years working out to give us a Constitution. And let's not follow the Constitution anymore, especially when it comes to the business of voting who is our top leader. Let's just abandon the electoral college system, which guarantees the states elect the president, and let's just make it popular vote, and we all have one vote, and that way we guys in New York and over in California, we get to run the whole country. And all them other people that are in between us and the flyover states, well, they're nobody anyways. We're the elite people. We're the smart people. We know what we're really doing. They don't know. I want to share a, a true story of when I was in the business world. And I uh, used to travel quite extensively. And some of my travels took me up into Boston in the New England states. There's a a very famous Air Force base up there near Boston called uh, Hanscom Air Force Base. And uh, I used to work through that as a government contractor, and so we worked with a lot of people who were up in that way. I got a chance to sit down and talk to a fellow that lived up there, you know, had lived there all of his life, and we were working on the same program. And he, he was from New England, and he was a Democrat, and he was very liberal. Me, I'm from the middle of the country, the flyover states. I'm conservative and Republican. I, we weren't asserting that. We weren't trying to make a big deal out of it. We were all working on the same program, working on the same task, helping the government out with what we were building. But it, I had the opportunity to ask him one day, very seriously, I said, let me ask you something. I said, you know, you're up here in the New England states, and uh, originally up here in Massachusetts, Lexington and Concord, this is where the Revolutionary War got started. You know, the shot heard around the world, this is where... The local militia took on the British you know, forces, and that started the Revolutionary War. And the whole country was born out of the original colonies, and, and New England was a very important part of that history that formed our nation and so forth. And I said, given that, I said, do you really, and I, and I phrased it this way, in your heart of hearts, do you really believe that you folks that live up here in New England really know best for the whole country and that us that live out in the hinderlands, the, the middle states, the flyover states, we really don't have quite the, the proper understanding to really have a real say about things. We're just obstacles to good things that need to happen. But you really know the right path that the country should go. Do you, do you really believe that? And I'll never forget his response to me. He said, uh, heart of hearts? Yeah, I do believe that. I believe that the people that are, live up here, that we, we understand the country better than others, and I, I think we should have more say about how the country should be run. And I thanked him for his candor and for his honesty, but then I also followed it up and I said, well, you know, there's one thing those people out there in the hinterlands know that you don't know. And he kind of looked at me and he said, uh, what do you mean? And I said, well, those folks out there in those other states, they know the difference between a donkey and a jackass. I am not making this up. It was a few minutes later he came and he asked me, what's the difference? He didn't know. The absurdity of what happens 
when a people that are the benefactors of a nation that has been given to them with hundreds of years and multiple generations and founders who put their lives on the line and has been generations have supported that and that there's a core set of principles that defines that nation and defines the, the definition of that people and for the later generations, the youth, the, the leaders, to get in their thinking, well, I'm going to be a little bit more liberal in my thinking. I'm not going to stick to that anymore. I'm going to do something different. The harm that is done to that nation is incredible. Now, the very principle I talked about in the case of ours, this is exactly what happened to Israel. Ancient Israel. They had principles. There were people who put their lives on the line that God used to establish them as a people, gave them a definition as a people, gave them a definition of a nation with promises and provision to establish them, to cause them to become great, even though they're a very small group, to become a great nation, just like the United States, small nation, become one of the greatest nations in the world. Same thing happened to Israel. And now that we've rised up to the point where we're a very powerful thing, we've lost sight of where we have come from, and we have lost sight of who in the world was our truly our great benefactor. And we're trying to create another path, another set of principles, another, another way of doing things. And the people that are in this elitist mode, they really truly believe they're smarter than everybody else. And everybody else is archaic and ancient and old and stupid and dumb. Right now in our country, half of our citizens look at conservatives and they would just as well do violence to us than tolerate our existence. Welcome to ancient Israel. The same mistakes that were made by Israel we're doing in our own country. I find it absolutely ironic. So here's this passage which Isaiah is going to be trying to, what, what I've just given to you, let me share with you how Isaiah tries to express this. First of all, let me just tell you that in this passage where we got here, Isaiah is a very complex prophet, very sophisticated. In fact, the terms that's used by uh, the Hebrew scholars is he has splendor in his teaching. He is majestic. The orations that he puts in here addressing these issues are stunning things. And to really appreciate the text and what he's done, I can't possibly in this time frame really give you the essence of it. But I will point one thing out to you right now. If you look down through this passage, if you start at Isaiah chapter 27, uh, even at first verse and on down through verse 6 where we begin, do you notice how the text uh, has been indented. You get to verse 12, the text in your Bibles will be out to a wider margin. And then you get into chapter 28, again, the text is indented. Uh, it doesn't fill up. Let me tell you, Bible printers, what they're doing. 
The part that is indented in the original Hebrew text is written in a form of poetry. It's not normal prose. Normal prose would be verses 12 and 13. But the poetry of what Isaiah is doing, he expresses these things, these things he's concerned about, things he's trying to provoke Israel into rethinking what they're doing and get on a different direction than the way they're going. He uses a very flowery, majestic, a very unique way of presenting a written message. In fact, a good cantor with this written in this poetic style could probably sing this to you. Isn't that fascinating? Not only is it profound what he said, but it's even profound in the way it would be expressed to us. Now, I cannot sing this to you. And by the way, since we're translated in English, we don't quite have the same appreciation of the rhythm of the words or the poetry that is in the Hebrew. But we do need to recognize this is a very interesting piece of text that has been given to us. And by the way, some of the prophets used to do this as a very powerful technique. It was a way of saying difficult things to the audience to get them to receive it so that they can at least process and start thinking about what it is without just openly offending them. You know, it's a little bit like, let's say that you wanted to come up and you wanted to correct someone. And instead of just walking up and saying, well, you need to correct that. You, you got humorous and you spoke a limerick. You, you spoke a limerick about what he was doing. And, and everybody kind of chuckles and notes the, the little limerick uh, thing to it. But you got your message across without not necessarily offending everybody. And, and somehow it was acceptable. That's how sophisticated this text is and what is being expressed here. So let me, I want to begin at chapter 27. What one heck of an introduction on the Torah portion there. Um, let me read to you from verse 6, and I want you to take note of a couple of things, because we're going to get into chapter 28, and I want to really focus, because chapter 28 stuff applies to you and me today. Same parallel, same issues for us today. Beginning at chapter 27, verse 6, In the days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. What a wonderful message. That's a wonderful message. You know what Isaiah is talking about? He's talking about the Messianic kingdom. There's a day coming when this plan that God has done is going to be just absolutely glorious. Now, that's in sharp contrast with where Israel is at the moment, afraid of the Assyrians. In the case of Jeremiah, afraid of the Babylonians. Could be harm coming their way. All kinds of tension, all kinds of struggles going on, different political points of view. Not everybody's in agreement. The whole nation's kind of divided whether we should follow the Torah or not. Whether we should believe in the God of Israel or whether we should move on and be like other people. He goes on to say, like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? 
Or like the slaughter of his slain, has he been slain? Thou didst contend with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven. And this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin when he makes all the altar stones like pulverized chalk stones, when Asherim and incense altars will not stand. Basically, what he's saying is, when will it come about that good things will come to Jacob. It's when God inflicts full judgment upon their enemies, and you take all those idle things that are running around here, in the, and you pulverize them to where they're dust. When you destroy every one of their altars that have been set up against the God of Israel, and you take down all their asherim, their, their, their totem poles, their sacred poles and pillars and, and uh, trees of praise, and you get rid of it all. That's when good things are going to come. So it, it's, in a, in a, and by the way, this is in poetry form. So you're listening and going, oh, you know, kind of singing along with it, kind of, huh, huh, huh. Oh, you mean the stuff that we're doing, that's got to stop? See, that, that's really the message of him. But let me take you now, let me move you to the end of that when he gets through with all of that. Verse 12, and it will come about in that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. And it will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and those who are scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. You see that phrase, in that day? You're going to find that all through chapter 27, chapter 28, and I believe, well, that's it. You're going to see that introductory phrase. What day is Isaiah referred to? A day when we're in the kingdom. The day when Jacob is really Israel and Israel is the kingdom. When this great plan that God started with our fathers, bringing himself to Egypt, establishing in this land, that the future generations will finally come to the point where we will live out and be what God wants us to be. It goes to the macro level of the question, why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? Because they were complaining? No, he brought them out of Egypt because he originally said to their fathers that this is what he would do with their descendants. He would make them a great nation. And that he would establish his kingdom so that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And part of that plan was to establish a nation that would be a light to the other nations. would set the example for the others to follow. That's the big plan. Now he has to bring them out, establish them as a nation so that we can carry on the plan. That's, that's the big plan. If you lose the vision of what the great plan is that God's been doing all along, guess what? You're just lost. Because those liberal fellows who are thinking about new things, they don't have a plan. 
They don't have a new concept, a new principle thing. They don't have a plan that's better than the original plan. Let me tell you what the liberal guy, the, let me tell you those that want to take issue with the Constitution, those that want to take issue with the Torah, you can, it, this parallel is just in, impeccable. Any time you have those kind of people, let me tell you what they're really after. They just want their own lusts satisfied. And by the way, the Bible says your lusts can never be satisfied, and you have just made a terrible decision. And the damage done will not be limited to you alone. It will affect everyone around you. The whole people, the whole nation, even other neighboring nations will be harmed by it. Um, taking the modern day application. I would love to see. They're not going to do it. So this is my opinion. I would love to see that any government official who has taken an oath of office to the Constitution suggesting the Electoral College results that has chosen Donald Trump to be the President of the United States, the states have decided it, that any person who takes issue with that and tries to delegitimize the presidency of Donald Trump, they should be arrested and charged with treason for violating their oath to protect and defend the Constitution. If they don't want an electoral college system, they don't want votes stating for it, then get your act together and go into other citizens and get the other states to agree with you and amend the Constitution. That is the proper way to make adjustments. Just like the Torah teaches us, the proper way to make corrections when things are being done is that we follow certain principles. If a man sins against you or errs against you, you have recourse. And, and there is a way to address it properly. You don't get to just go over, well, I don't like him, so kill him. By the way, you don't get to stand up in this country and say, well, I don't like him as president, so I'm not going to consider him to be the president. I'm sorry. You're just talking through your hat, and you're an idiot. You, you cannot make the Constitution go away by you just mouthing off that you want something different and you don't like the result. You can't make it go away. There is a proper way to amend the Constitution, and by the way, that's not the way. Not protesting in the streets, not refusing to go to the inauguration, and by the way, Israel, just because you decide, well, I'm not going to follow the Torah anymore. I think I'm going to go off and do my own thing. You're not going to change the commandments of the Lord that way. By the way, i got news for you. You're not going to change the commandments of the Lord at all. The Lord is the one who gave those commandments. You cannot go change the Lord. The only decision you really have is do you want to agree with the Lord or not? And we, as basic citizens, we make a fundamental decision. Will I obey the supreme law of the land or will I not? If you're a good citizen, you say, yes, I will be a law-abiding citizen. By the way, the scripture teaches us as believers that we're to honor and respect the authorities and the laws that are established for us. Because they're all predicated and based upon the principles of what the Torah was. And I can assure you, this constitution 
This constitution was formed on the basis of principles that came out of the Torah. They went right to the scriptures and they structured a three-part government based on Torah principles. And they only gave a certain amount of power to the leader based on lessons learned from the scriptures. And they recognized the functions of government for the benefit of the citizens, which, by the way, God established the nation of Israel for the benefit of the people. Not for God's ego. Not to oppress any other peoples, but to establish a people and let them become a shining example so that it would draw others to follow. But we've lost our way. My time has basically come to a conclusion here. I think I've made my basic point. But I want to leave you with this, on this. As you get into chapter 28, this is the part that applies to us. Um, in chapter 28, the prophet goes on to, and he begins to address, wait a minute, how are we supposed to really understand this? And if you look at verse 9, he says, to whom would he teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from wealth, those just taken for the breast. But he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary. And he said, here's repose, but they would not listen. The instructions of the Lord are given in such a way that I don't care what state of maturity you're in, you can receive benefit from the instructions. I've always said of the Torah and of the scriptures, the very same scriptures can amaze a child and profoundly stun a wise man. The very same words. That's how capable they are full of wisdom and knowledge and understanding, and it is our goal to learn those things so that we can live and live better. Let me take you to, though, what the conclusion of that is in verse 14. Let me read this passage to you. Isaiah 28, verse 14. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, and I would say the same thing to the rulers of this world in this generation, the rulers of this nation, the ruler of other nations, you need to listen to this. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact, the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. For we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Boy, does that describe the governments of the world today. They know trouble is coming. we got all kinds of trouble on the horizon. And they said, well, we're, we're, we're going to take care of it. We're going to use deceit and lies, and we're going to lie to the people, and we're going to lie to one another, and, and we're going to cover ourselves in deception. And that, that's how we're going to take care of this. And you know what? There are actual leaders that think that's really smart. In fact, Hillary Clinton in her campaign specifically stated these words. There is one thing that you say to the people, but there's another thing you say to the leaders. That's in old school, that's called being two-faced. That's the, the code of a liar. By the way, President Obama was in, in, in full suit doing that. And that's very apparent. And they think that's the smart way of doing things. 
The Bible is saying here, you scoffers of God, that's what you've been doing. This is not going to work for you. And he goes on to say the following. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes it will not be disturbed. And I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. And the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the water shall overflow the secret place. And your covenant with death shall be canceled and your pact with Sheol shall not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become its trampling place. The tested cornerstone, you know who that is. The Messiah. When I make him the king of kings, when I establish his kingdom, all this other stuff these leaders have been doing, you won't have any covering. You will be judged. You will become the trampling place. We're talking about the second coming. These are the issues of the last generation when we have the coming of the king. The very issues that happened in ancient Israel, the very issues we see today in the world today. Another sign of the end times. I wish I had more time. I could go into Jeremiah and show you the parallel of what he says there about the Babylonians, but it's essentially the same message. So we'll conclude with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the Sabbath. Lord, we not only thank you for the Sabbath, but Lord, we lift up to you our new president and the leadership of our of our nation. Let us learn the lessons of the past. Let us as a people, those that want to stay with the original understandings, the original principles, the ones that have guided us before, and our trust in you, Lord, let that prevail in this land. We pray for that, Lord. And we ask for it in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you very much. and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom.